the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Today, of course, is a big day, one much anticipated. The behemoth has fallen. We're going to talk today about what's next. We'll talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We're going to find out uh, what happens now. What's next for an organization like Oregon Right to Life and others that have been working in the pro-life movement for decades? We'll also talk with Patrick Brown. He's a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, the end of role will require a new type of politics. He wrote a piece in the New York Times. We'll talk with him about that. And Nicole Hunt is an attorney and life issues um, uh, analyst for Focus on the Family. We'll talk about the continuing legal battle following the fall of Roe versus Wade. And in our second hour, the Christian Outlook. We'll hear from uh, Alexandra DeSanctis. She writes for the National Review. She's also got a forthcoming book on abortion, Tearing Us Apart. Abby Johnson will also uh, be a guest. She's formerly with Planned Parenthood, now a champion for the pro-life cause. She's going to talk about the battles ahead. Dr. Albert Moeller will look at another U.S. Supreme Court decision on a case coming out of Maine that allows families to use state resources to get private and now religious education for their children. And Gino Garacci and Jim Dennison will talk about the overall state of things in our culture. All of that coming up on today's version of The Georgine Rice Show. I woke up this morning, the phone was ringing, and it was James Blend on the other end of the line. I may not get the quote quite right, but he said, welcome to the post-Roe America. I hadn't yet uh, turned the news on, so I didn't know that the announcement had been made that Roe versus Wade was overturned. I was unable to speak. I burst into tears, and for probably 20 to 25 minutes, I, I just wept over an issue that has been Something I've worked on for decades. In fact, before I came to work for KPDQ, I was a uh, spokesperson for Oregon Right to Life, and I would come into the studio and be interviewed and was asked at um, the last interview I did for Oregon Right to Life if I was interested in doing radio. So I had been working full time on uh, the work of Oregon Right to Life. I've, um, you know, done the uh, county fairs where you sit with the, the fetal models and talk with people. I've uh, I've been at the bedside of uh, women who have decided, yes, I'm going to carry my child to term and uh, watched, walked them through and watched them through that very difficult process of and then seeing the look on their face when the baby uh, is brought forth, sometimes for adoption, sometimes to raise the child uh, themselves. It's been a very long, uh, long period of time. And I have to admit, I did not think I would see Roe versus Wade overturn uh, in my lifetime. I think about. Uh, on uh, January the 22nd, standing at the Pioneer Courthouse Square or the steps of the state capitol for a pro-life gathering to remember the Roe versus Wade decision and the number of uh, of children whose lives ended as a consequence. And that date, while it remains uh, one of significance, it will be replaced by June the 24th, the day in which that decision was overturned. In its wake, Roe versus Wade has left 63 million. 
That's how many children have been killed since the Supreme Court discovered a right to abortion in 1973 and what they referred to at the time as the penumbra. It wasn't explicitly stated, but if you had eyes to see, there was a penumbra within which the right to abortion could be found. Well, that has since been repudiated. Now, as I mentioned, that 63 million children whose lives ended, I am reminded that for every one of those children, there is a woman who carried that child at least for some period of time who made the very difficult, painful decision to end that pregnancy. Now, some women came to strongly regret that decision, and some have never reconciled the decision to abort a child Even those who have um, come to faith in Christ, believing that that is one impediment that prevents them from having full fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, whose grace is sufficient to cover all of our sins. And I just want to say in the wake of Roe versus Wade and the attention being focused on the numbers of abortions that have been performed in this country, if you are one of those women and you have um, come to terms with that decision and feel like there is Maybe an impediment to even coming to faith in Christ or you are a believer, but that has been an impediment to walking in full joy and forgiveness that God's grace is sufficient for that. Every one of my sins, it's not that's not one of them, but I have plenty others that is sufficiently covered by the grace of God. So I want to encourage you while this is a very difficult time because so much attention is focused on abortion that you can experience the full freedom of forgiveness in Christ. So let that burden go and do not allow the enemy uh, to give you the impression that somehow you are less than because of that particular decision that you made. Well, that said, today, the U.S. Supreme Court voted five to four, uh, rather six to three to overturn the 1973 Roe versus Wade and 1992 Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey abortion decisions. Um, Justice Alito authored the opinion of the court overturning Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Justice Alito was joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett. Chief Justice Roberts authored a concurring opinion saying that he agreed that the viability standard had no basis in the Constitution and that it should be discarded. But he did not vote to overturn Roe and Casey. Justices Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan jointly authored a dissent to that opinion. There's nothing in the Constitution about abortion and the Constitution doesn't implicitly protect the right. In fact, the Constitution protects the fundamental right to life, which was enshrined in the nation's birth certificate the Declaration of Independence. The court holds that it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Even Justice um, oh, um, Justice Ginsburg at one point made the uh, observation that Roe versus Wade was very vulnerable and previous Supreme Court justices recognized that it wasn't good jurisprudence. Uh, Nonetheless, Justice Thomas writes separately to reiterate his view that the due process clause does not also does not protect a right to an abortion. He says the court needs to dispense with the nonsense of substantive due process. As I have previously explained, substantive due process is an oxymoron that lacks any basis in the Constitution. Indeed, the notion that a constitutional provision that guarantees only process before a person is deprived of life, liberty or property could define the substance of those rights, strains credulity from even the most casual user of words. The resolution of this case is thus straightforward because the due process clause does not secure any substantive rights. It does not secure a right 
to abortion. He says in future cases, the court should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence and Obergfell. Well, Justice Kavanaugh has a separate concurring opinion arguing that the Constitution is neutral on abortion, and so the court was wrong in Roe to weigh in and take a side. The Chief Justice's opinion, concurring in the judgment, says the court should have um, held that the viability line, the idea that the Constitution protects a right to an abortion until the fetus, the unborn, the child in utero, becomes viable, has no basis in the Constitution, so Mississippi's law would be held constitutional. Chief Justice Roberts argued the court should not have decided anything else. Both the court's opinion and the dissent display a relentless freedom from doubt on the legal issue that I cannot share. End quote. Well, this is um, regarding the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization concerning a Mississippi law known as the Gestational Age Act. It was enacted in 2018. It prohibits abortions after 15 weeks gestation, except in a medical emergency and in cases of severe fetal abnormality. The Supreme Court now sends the abortion issue back to the individual states. The opinion, 79 pages, was written by Justice Alito. He wrote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. That's where abortion was before the 1973 decision was rendered by the 13 robed jurists. The opinion continues, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement on the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. The high court wrote Planned Parenthood versus Casey concluded that stare decisis, which is precedent, which calls for prior decisions to be followed in most instances, requires adherence to what is called Roe's central holding, that a state may not constitutionally protect fetal life before viability, even if that holding was wrong. Anything less, the opinion claimed, would undermine respect for this court and the rule of law. Paradoxically, the judgment in Casey did a fair amount of overruling, but the three justices who authored the controlling opinion call the contending sides of a national controversy to end their national division by treating the court's decision as the final settlement of the question of the constitutional right to abortion, as has become increasingly apparent in the intervening years. Casey did not achieve that goal. There were amicus briefs filed, of course, in this case that included organizations, pro-life groups, very diverse churches, religious leaders, individuals. There were 70,000 African-American and Hispanic churches and millions of African-American and Hispanic Americans across America who asked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe because uh, legalizing abortion was unconstitutional. It violated the right to life and supported racist eugenics eugenics. In fact, the court notes uh, that the brief argues that the roots of abortion are motivated by a desire to suppress the size of the African-American population. The opinion continues, and it is beyond dispute that Roe has had that demographic effect. A highly disproportionate uh, percentage of aborted fetuses are black. 
Well, we are now witnessing an historic event that will reverberate around the world. The abortion decision did incalculable damage to the Supreme Court's integrity because they were wrongly decided and no had no connection with the Constitution. And the carnage left in the wake of Roe versus Wade cannot be measured, not just in the lives of unborn children, but in the lives of mothers and fathers impacted by it. May God forgive and heal our land for this great sin. May God be praised for his faithfulness in seeing the hand of protection once again extended to the life of every unborn child in the womb. And may God protect the justices of the United States who will be under attack having rendered this decision. We pray for the future of our nation. Up next, we'll talk with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Roe has fallen. So now what? That's up next on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Years ago, when I worked full time for Oregon Right to Life, the executive director and I um, worked hard on that issue. Uh, I emailed him early this morning expressing my utter delight with the decision that had been made by the Supreme Court, and he wrote back, writing, I honestly did not believe this day would occur in my lifetime, but God, being who he is, places limits to his tolerance with grave injustice. Mighty nations fall, slaveries are abolished, and today in our nation, a new dawn is cresting the horizon. No longer will we gather on January 22nd, now we'll gather on June 24th. Well, it uh, delighted my heart to read those words as I learned of what had happened earlier in the day in the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. Well, here at home, the question is, what's next? Joining us to talk about that is Lois Anderson, the current executive director of Oregon Right to Life, on uh, what the organization will do differently, what the call will be moving forward, and to just get her response to this uh, this day that we've all waited for. Lois, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It is wonderful to be able to be with you, Georgine. And um, I also talked with that same former executive director as well as the others today. I just really feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants today to be privileged to be um, a pro-life leader at this time, knowing of all the years and the dedication that has gone into this moment. I just, um, the song, Oh Happy Day, keeps playing (laughs) in my head. And um, it just is, is a time for really for us to rejoice in this just and righteous decision today. Well, you know, I appreciate that you mentioned there are generations of people who worked and I'm focusing primarily on the state of Oregon at this moment who have worked on this issue faithfully. And you do stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, but you are yourself a giant in that you've taken on that responsibility during a very difficult time. And my guess is moving forward, there may be challenges that none of those previous leaders faced uh, as the vitriol uh, following this decision among those who are in favor of abortion on demand as um, it was uh, permitted under Roe versus Wade, have had that taken from them. Your thoughts on the, 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 well, I guess the announcement that this is going to be a summer of rage that people have taken to the streets and they've already targeted Oregon Right to Life, some of the pregnancy resource centers here in the Portland metro area and southwest Washington. Your thoughts? Well, we abhor violence. You know, we, we are a nonviolent movement and 
I think there are um, people of good faith who are pro-choice, who are also nonviolent. I, um, we need to join together as Oregonians and, and condemn this kind of, of action. Um, and there's no excuse for violence against people or against property um, for political means. They're, they're just, it, there should be a full, a full stop on that kind of activity from across, across political and philosophical spectrums. Yeah, absolutely. I know Oregon Right to Life was the subject of uh, violence. They weren't very successful, but I imagine security there has to be tightened somewhat. Yes, it is. We've taken precautions um, and we're, we're ready when the decision, um, we knew it was coming at, at some point soon and, and we have um, taken measures to uh, protect our property and to protect our staff. It, it's unfortunate um, that we have to do that, but it's also important for us to feel like we can enter our office, we can do our work and we can protect this building, which um, wonderful pro-life donors have helped us to purchase and to maintain so that it can be a place where um, we're able to gather and and continue to do the important work of our organization. Well, speaking of the important work of this organization, let's talk about what Oregon Rights to Life's focus will be moving forward. Now, some might imagine Roe versus Wade is overturned. Our work is done, but it really shifts. The work continues, perhaps a bit differently. How do you see Oregon Right to Life moving forward in support of the sanctity of human life? Well, I think I'm going to butcher with Winston Churchill. I think that it might be the end or it might be the beginning or it might be the beginning of the end. Um, it, it is um, this really is it, it's a new it's a new beginning for us, but it's the beginning of, of a long road um, that 50 years, nearly 50 years of legal abortion in this country and in our state has corrupted our institutions um, from from medicine to the legal to legal institution to political and government. I it, it will not be a, a quick process to to undo that. Now, some states. Um, I was speaking with someone from Nebraska. Their governor is going to call a special session and they're going to pass a law um, uh, on limiting abortions in almost every case. Uh, there are some states where that's going to happen quickly because they've been working and they're at a point where they're ready to do that. Here in Oregon, um, Oregon Right to Life's work is going to look very much um, similar to what we were doing before this decision. We're going to be educating people about the humanity of the unborn child, about abortion procedures and why it is wrong and also working on legislation that we, through our research over time, has shown that, that a majority of Oregonians support, which is limiting late-term abortions. That's, that's what we're going to continue to do. Um, we want to be um, approaching this issue with love and with peace and seeking consensus, not with conflict and, um, and rage. And I think part of that has to be acknowledging where Oregonians are at in their view of where um, they want to protect unborn children. And we want to work to start there. Well, I, I so appreciate it. I'm not at all surprised, but appreciate to hear the approach that you are determined to take on this very contentious um, issue. I, I know that for all of us, particularly those who are pro-life and happen to also be 
uh, Jesus followers, it's very important not only that we get the issue right, but that we are right in the way we approach the issue, um, that we have the right attitude. <laughs> and that can be something of a challenge when opponents are um, announcing their rage. But um, I'm grateful that because we support life, that we approach it in a way that respects all life, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb and people with whom we have strong disagreement. That's true. I mean, I, I think that's the only way that we can approach things. What What is more loving than protecting an innocent, unborn unborn baby? And we we need to also be showing love and care for mothers and pregnancy resource centers around Oregon, maternity homes, churches, other civic organizations. They they have been doing this for years. They have been walking alongside women um, who are unsupported in their pregnancies for years, and they're going to continue to do it. And I challenge every pro-life person, believer, Jesus follower listening today, if you're not engaged in your community with an organization that supports pregnant women, do it. Get up and go figure out what you can do to help. If you can give, give. If you can do maintenance, if you can fix cars, if whatever it is that you have to offer, there's a woman in your community that needs that. And we have to stand up and put our money and our time where our mouth is. Absolutely. Well, Lois, you've been doing that for quite some time. I appreciate your leadership role as executive director of Oregon Right to Life. And we will certainly keep you and the Pregnancy Resource Centers and other pro-life ministries in our area in prayer over these uh, these next few days. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you. God bless. Again, Lois uh, Anderson is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Up next, Patrick Brown, a fellow in Ethics and Policy Center. And uh, we're going to talk about the end of role and the fact that it was going to require a new type of politics. That's coming up on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As we've been talking about the Supreme Court decision overturning the landmark Roe versus Wade decision, the ruling that guaranteed the constitutional right to abortion, I wanted to continue our conversation by looking at various aspects of how we move forward in this post-Roe era. Uh, joining us to talk about that is Patrick Brown. He is a fellow with Ethics and Public Policy Center. He wrote a piece in the New York Times in which he says the end of Roe will require a new type of politics. And as we anticipate what uh, what the march looks like from here, I wanted to talk to him about what that new kind of politics might look like as well. Patrick Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I, I have to tell you, I still am walking on cloud nine as a pro-life person. I have anticipated for decades the overturn of Roe versus Wade. Never thought I'd see it in my lifetime and have been bracing for this moment when the announcement was to be made. But it's a very sobering moment as well, because moving forward, the issue, of course, is not dead. It's not settled law. The states will now be responsible for making decisions about how they will move forward. But you write in your piece in The New York Times that uh, the end of role requires a new type of politics. Explain what you mean by that and what we might anticipate moving forward. Sure. Well, it, it certainly is a surreal day. It's a joyful day. It's a great day that so many people have worked for for you know half a century now, mm-hmm. and so it is a time to celebrate. But it's also a time to to recommit ourselves to what it means to be pro life. And I think 
that um, the, the, the movement that fought for five decades to overturn Roe, having succeeded, now needs to turn to two areas of focus. And one is obviously the state-level battle to make sure that, that the, the promise of protecting unborn children is carried out. And we're going to see different, different states do different actions on, on different things. And, and I think that, that, that movement will continue to go forward at the state level. But I think beyond that, we need to be thinking about making sure that moms in need and, and, and families in general get the resources they, they deserve. Because a society that has the ability to uh, protect unborn life in the womb also has the responsibility to make sure that child uh, it, it has a, a healthy uh, mom and a healthy family and uh, deserves a, has a claim on the resources necessary to have a, a healthy life. So I, I think a, a pro-life agenda needs to be thinking about making family life easier for all parents. And I, and I think there's there's energy behind that. Well, absolutely. And as you know, uh, for decades, there have have been a movement within the pro-life community that has ministered to and supported and undergirded women who find themselves in unplanned pregnancies uh, along with their children. So this movement will continue. But it seems to me under the current circumstances, we need to redouble our efforts. The numbers will increase. The need will grow. Um, and do you anticipate that's that's going to be the natural response or are we going to have to be more vigilant in order to um, to meet the need that we've been working and praying for for so many years? Oh, without a doubt, there will be increased need. And, and you know, it's not going to be, you know, obviously there's still going to be uh, uh, blue states that offer abortion, mm-hmm. Oregon and California. Uh, so there's still going to be, uh, you know, unfortunately, women who have that option available to them. But certainly, especially for women in, in red states or rural parts of the country, there's going to be an uptick in, in women who maybe would have chosen abortion in, in the under the row regime, but now obviously are going to uh, have a claim on uh, on resources and increase at crisis pregnancy centers do heroic work that deserve our support. And I hope everybody goes out and, and you know, d- donates what they can today to celebrate this uh, this decision to the, you know, the, the crisis pregnancy center nearest them because they're doing, you know, work that's amazing and, and, and saving lives every day. But beyond that, I think we need to be talking about what public policy can do as well. Mm-hmm. Nonprofit and religious groups do so much work and they're stretched so thin that we need to recognize that, that sometimes it is an important role for the state to come in as well. And I think, uh, provisions like an expanded child tax credit or other uh, safety net programs that are aimed at moms facing unplanned pregnancies, I think those can make a real difference as well in conjunction with the the, the robust work of of pregnancy resource centers. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the president, in response to the overturn of Roe versus Wade, made it very clear he thought there needs to be a federal response in which the, the right to abortion, which is not found in the Constitution, needs to be enshrined somewhere in federal law. Um, your thoughts on what the president is proposing and uh, on the political front, uh, where the challenge lies in terms of influencing what may or may not be legislation and the ultimate outcome? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I disagree with the president and, and folks on the left who want to sort of try to revivify Roe. I think we've seen 50 years of, of polarization around this because the democratic process wasn't allowed to work itself out. And, I, you know, I think certainly what makes sense for South Carolina or Iowa is going to look different than California and New York. And I think in, in a federalist system like the U.S., that's what pro-lifers should be working for. And, and obviously hoping to change the minds of people in California and New York as well. But, but for the time being, you know, accepting that you know, the states are the appropriate place to be drawing these lines and, and protecting life in the womb. And then uh, at the federal level, though, I do think there is room for some of these more creative policy ideas 
around uh, making sure that that uh, moms and, and babies have the resources they need. I think there is uh, tremendous energy on the right now to be talking about what a, a pro-family economic policy would look like. And we have different plans out from senators like Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, and others talking about uh, really backing up our, our, our putting our money where our mouth is, talking about the importance of being pro-life, but also investing in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, of course, has always been the challenge in the pro-life movement, broadening that to uh, the the public square is going to be one of the challenges that we face uh, moving forward. I know with regard to the decision itself, there are some critics who suggest that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, for example, had lied to the Senate during their testimony about respecting Supreme Court precedent. Any any comment on um, this notion that the the process in which these individuals were confirmed essentially affirmed their support for Roe versus Wade and that somehow they've deceived the country? Your thoughts on that uh, that charge? No, I think that's misleading. I think, um, you know, the, the three most recent justices that were you know, uh, appointed by President Trump and, and really all the justices on the court have always been very careful to talk about uh, to, to not talk about cases that could come yes. up in front of them. And, and certainly, you know, they, they were they were always uh, very deferential to the, the prospect of weighing in on a forthcoming case and talking about how they're, you know, there's certainly precedent does hold a very strong case in, in, in the court's decision making, but it's not sacrosanct. And there are instances where the court got it wrong in the past and had to be overturned. Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson. There are there are examples where the, the court got it wrong and sometime later recognized that. And I think hopefully history will show Roe to be another glaring example of the court trying to do, you know, trying to take up too much power to itself and, and set down a national mandate of what abortion law needed to look like. And I think the court made the right decision in, in recognizing that that was an error. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, I so appreciate the work that you do and for taking the time specifically to talk with us today about uh, what we might anticipate moving forward now that Roe versus Wade is in the rearview mirror. Thank you so much. Always happy to. You. Thanks so much. Again, Patrick Brown is the fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he works. Uh, his work rather focuses on developing a robust pro-family economic agenda and supporting families as the cornerstone of a healthy and flourishing society. Up next, we're going to talk with Nicole Hunt. She is an attorney and life issues analyst for Focus on the Family. We're going to talk about the continued legal battle while Roe versus Wade has been declared. Uh, an unconstitutional, not unconstitutional, but not a constitutional right. It's rather awkwardly put, but I think you get the general idea. Uh, that doesn't mean that there are um, not going to be legal battles moving forward. States that have outlawed abortion in anticipation of this day will surely be challenged. Some of them have already been challenged, but we'll talk with Nicole Hunt about what we might anticipate moving forward on the legal front uh, in the wake of Roe versus Wade. And then in the second hour of today's program, the Christian Outlook, we'll talk with uh, or hear from rather Kevin McCullough as he talks with Alexandra DeSanctis, writer of the for the National Review about her forthcoming book, Tearing Us Apart. Also, Bill Bunkley will talk about um, Abby Johnson, who formerly worked with uh, Planned Parenthood, now a champion for the pro-life cause. Uh, to talk about the battles ahead. Dr. Albert Moeller will look at the Supreme Court's decision on the case coming out of Maine that allows families to use state resources to get private and now religious education for their children under a very uh, specific set of circumstances. And uh, we'll hear from Gino Garacci and Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum as they talk about the overall state of things in our culture today. A good moment to stand back 
and consider where we stand. All of that coming up for the remainder of today's program. Nicole Hunt up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing our conversation on Roe versus Wade, now overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. The decision um, is one that pro-life advocates, I being one of them, have worked for and prayed for and longed for for many, many years. But the work of the pro-life movement, it hasn't ended. It's just beginning. And here to talk with us about the next phase of this uh, this effort, Nicole Hunt. She's an attorney and life issues analyst for Focus on the Family. She says conservatives have to be prepared for a continued legal battle for abortion, what that might look like and what it's going to require of those who profess and practice the pro-life ethic. We'll discuss in uh, with Nicole in just a moment. Nicole Hunt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First of all, I want to give you an opportunity to comment on the decision rendered by the Supreme Court earlier today overturning Roe versus Wade. Your thoughts? Yeah, you know, a focus on the family. We have just been filled with gratitude, first to God for the justice finally being served, and to the Supreme Court for restoring constitutional order. You know, I sometimes wonder as I see the angry crowds and the cheering crowds, depending on what side of the issue you happen to be on, if people fully understand what this decision will actually do. It does certainly declare that there is no constitutional right to abortion, but it remands the decision-making back to the state. Some are behaving as if abortion is over. I mean, I wish that were the case. Um, and others are, are behaving as if um, uh, abortion um, will continue. Can you explain what the decision actually does and why a continued legal battle is likely to be the case throughout the, the states? Yes, absolutely. And this is a really important question for your listeners to understand. So today's decision, it reversed Roe versus Wade. But what it didn't do is outlaw abortion in the country. Instead, it turned that decision back to the states to decide what will they do at the state level in order to come to some kind of an agreement on abortion policy. Now, let me stop right there and add this decision could also be made by the U.S. Congress. Right now, there is, there's a bunch of gridlock, so that's not something that we can imagine happening in this session. But moving forward, it is a possibility that Congress could legislate on this issue. This session, that won't happen. The other option is that uh, there could be some kind of a constitutional amendment that is drafted and then put forward to the states to vote on. Again, there's so much division right now. There wouldn't be enough states to support a constitutional amendment, but those are the other two options. So right now we're looking at actions happening within the state. Now, it's really important to note that there are 26 states, 22 for certain and four that are likely to protect life at the state level. That means that there are remaining 24 states that have either statutes, practices, or constitutional interpretations that protect abortion. So this matter is far from settled in terms of what the states are doing, or even whether or not the current law will remain the law. Now, the president early on in response to the Supreme Court decision is urging Congress to codify Roe uh, in, through the statutory uh, uh, means. What would that look like if it were possible for Congress to act? Because I, I think most of us understand that the states now have the authority to make decisions about what the abortion practice will be within their own states. But what... Can Congress or could Congress consider doing? Yes. So 
just this last uh, this term of Congress, we've seen the Senate now bring up a bill, two different bills that one was before the Supreme Court leak and one was after the Supreme Court leak, trying to find an agreement on legislating abortion at the federal level. Now, because the makeup of the Senate is 50-50 and they would have to overcome a cloture vote, which means to end debate mm-hmm. and to be able to actually vote on the bill, uh, there, was no, there was not enough support for that. So they couldn't do it. But I will tell you, the House of Representatives, who had enough pro-abortion legislators in place, they already passed a bill that would codify abortion in federal law. So it won't take much. It will take one side or the other from having enough votes in order to make this happen, at least 60 on the Senate side. Now, in these very divided, politically divided times, it's almost hard to imagine that one party supporting only one abortion position uh, could get up to 60 votes. But that is what the Senate would need in order for abortion to be codified at the state level or at the federal level. And that's somewhat surprising because uh, in the absence of a uh, constitutional amendment, it's hard to believe that you could statutorily in a federalist system like ours impose abortion on the country again by Congress. But that's a possibility. Yes, it is a very real possibility. Another possibility is we might see the pro-abortion members try to move to to repeal um, this cloture voting, but the, the number of votes that is required that would end a filibuster. Um, so that's something for your listeners to keep an eye on. Um, and another possibility is that the uh, the Congress altogether might, uh, might punt on this issue. I mean, obviously, we've already heard that they're trying to make it an election issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the truth is, is it should be an election issue. And I sure hope that the pro-life members of our community show up to vote. And I hope that they vote their conscience on this issue because we need more pro-life members in Congress and in our state representatives. Absolutely. I know that chemical abortions are uh, replacing um, abortion, medical abortions in rather significant numbers. I think the, the pandemic played a significant role in the increase in numbers. What role do you see chemical abortion playing moving forward in terms of how the the nation deals with this, and particularly in states that have outlawed abortions? Yeah, this is going to be a very important battleground, and we're probably going to see this play out in the courts. Um, Right now, the plan of the abortion industry is to try to use this loophole that's been created where uh, even just this Last fall, I believe, the Biden administration was supporting abortion by mail um, incentives. And so what they're trying to do is use that so that women who find themselves in states that protect life, who want to get an abortion, would simply seek out abortion medicine from states that permit abortion, thereby circumventing their state laws and still being able to get to, to get the abortion, which is what they're trying to do. Well, I appreciate your reminding us and putting into perspective the fact that this is not a battle that has ended one phase. And I think the most significant phase of this uh, back and forth in the country over abortion has ended in that the U.S. Supreme Court has declared there is no constitutional right to abortion. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg warned that there uh, she held an opposite point of view that uh, role was very vulnerable. So that first that first step has now been completed. And I have to admit, I didn't expect I'd see it in my lifetime, but I'm grateful that I have. But there's much more to be done. And 
Uh, those who have been active in the pro-life community need to continue to understand the new landscape. And those who have been on the sidelines perhaps become activated in that they understand the the various fronts in which this uh, this issue is going to be uh, at the fore. Absolutely. If there's anything that's going to happen is that we're going to hear about abortion policy even more than we've heard about it in the past, because the battlefront is not just the Supreme Court anymore. It's in 50 different states and everyone is going to be actively pursuing the cause that they believe in, whether that's the cause for life or the cause for death. One other legal question I wanted to ask you, the uh, uh, Congress passed a bill just recently protecting the homes of Supreme Court justices while they're in the process of deliberating, as was the case with Roe versus Wade, that process is now ended. Is there legal protection for them in uh, this season in which at least one faction has declared this is going to be a summer of rage and that uh, those involved in it will be ungovernable? Um, how concerned should we be about the, the protection of Supreme Court justices, their families, and for that matter, pro-life ministries that have already been the target of violence? Oh, I think it's very important that we hold the Department of Justice and the FBI's feet to the fire and demand that investigations continue into these violent terrorist acts, that prosecutions are held, and that these people are held accountable for their violent and aggressive behavior. Because it doesn't matter what position you're on. And truth is, is we've heard a lot of pro-abortion um, legislators on, on TV today, even calling for defying the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and ignoring the Supreme Court. I mean, this is the time that we respect the rule of law. And this is the time that we call on our leaders to condemn bad behavior and to prosecute those who overstep their bounds and who do not respect uh, our constitutional order. We have a constitutional order in place to protect us from chaos and tyranny. And so this is the time that we need to hold our officials accountable and we need to make sure that they are preserving and protecting what makes America great. And that's our constitutional order. Absolutely. Nicole Hunt, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Again, Nicole Hunt is an attorney and life issues analyst for Focus on the Family. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show News and Traffic up next and then this week's Christian Outlook. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.